Hey friends, hey buddies, it's the Skewer Podcast. The Skewer is a live monthly news review satirizing the news of the previous month with hilarious ass satirical op-eds and debate, and this time featuring a brand new segment from co-producer Erica Treisbach called, uh, well, you'll find out, you'll see. It's, uh, it's something real good. Y- you'll notice it when it happens. Uh, this show was recorded on January 4th, 2017. Please do enjoy. The only thing changes. There was no person. Now there is a person. You figured it out eventually. Thank you all. Thank you all for coming out to the skewer on this nightmare day. So cold, I'm surprised I even left my house tonight. It's Tom Harrison. I'm your host tonight for the Skewer. Skewer is a delightful satirical news review of the, sh- of the news of the previous month. We got op-eds. We got uh, debates. And this month we got a little special new bit that we're debuting. We don't even know if any other show does it. We don't know if it's watchable, but we'll find out. It'll, it will be. It's, it's a joke, but it's good. So, how are everyone's holidays? Yeah. Yeah. Anyone get any good presents? No. Yeah, for me, my best present, I got a uh, suffocating mantle of dread uh, from my best bud, The Universe. Didn't have the heart to tell him that I already had one. But you know, you can never have too many of those. But jokes aside, 2016 is over. We survived. I don't think I could have picked a worse year to start a show that requires me to read the news every day and spend time thinking critically about its implications and what it means for the world. Remember, this isn't my fucking job. I'm doing this allegedly for fun. But hey, hey, the year is over. The curse 2016 is gone. What a relief, right? Wrong! (laughs) Guys, 2016 was the final year in history where Donald Trump was never president. It seems weird to say that, right? It seems like he's been president since August. But yeah, Earth has existed flitting through the cosmos without a Donald Trump presidency for billions of years, just untold eons, all beautifully unmarred by Donald Trump being president. And all those glorious years are about to end, and they'll never come back. (laughs) And I know it's silly to look back on dinosaur times because Trump wasn't president then. I mean, like, duh. But oh man, you need to understand how precious these non-Trump years are about to become. By the end of this year, you will be begging for 2016. You would greet it as a tender lover. 2017 will be the year equivalent of seeing me say tender lover on stage at a show you chose to go to. You could have stayed home, no one would have known, but no. You willingly came out, and now you have to look at me and listen as I say, tender lover. It's awful. Tender lover. 
This month was an object lesson in why the law is not a real thing. A lesson we all need to learn right quick. It's easy to assume that if you do a thing that's really wrong and bad, that the law, with its inherent power and existing, will just happen to you and see to it that you're punished. So when we see Trump pressuring the Kuwaiti embassy to hold an annual event at his hotel, when we see him turning down the Secret Service in favor of his favorite private security corporation, uh, when we see him calling for a new nuclear arms race, when we see him turning down intelligence reports because he's already smart, as though he believes they're the reports designed to make him more intelligent, like the limitless pills, <laughs> in which case, why would you even turn him down? The limitless pills make you smart, even if you were smart to begin with. When we see these things, we think, well, this is deeply fucked. Surely something will be done. He will be impeached for these impeachable acts. Nah, friends. Yeah, yeah, the law yeah. is an illusion. Power is all that exists, and he has it. He's going to do way worse and get away with all of it. Gu guaranteed. I mean, God, remember, remember when we thought the fact that he was a rapist was going to hurt him? I should clarify, when I said we thought, uh, I meant men. Women knew it didn't matter. Women knew it never mattered. Yeah, bring you down at my comedy show. <laughs> but you know, raising the mood, we had some faithless electors valiantly refuse to cast their votes for Trump. Inspiring, just kidding. The faithless electors were from states that Clinton won. <laughs> You know, I tried really hard to understand their reasoning. I really wanted to get it. But, like, guys, I can think of a way better protest candidate you could have voted for. <laughs> God, everything is just the worst. Everything is terrible. I feel like an insane, paranoid conspiracy theorist half the time, pinning cut-out news stories to a corkboard and connecting them with red thread, writing single words with question marks after them and circling a bunch of times. And then when I step back, I gasp. As I realize that all the red threads are converging on a single point and it says people are fucking dumb and love power and money and I'm like, oh. <laughs> I cracked it. <laughs> and what are the Democrats, our last hope, our champions doing in these final days before Trump's ascendancy? If you guessed fucking up, then wow. <laughs> good job. That's been the right answer for a whole lot of years now. The DNC has just been going whole hog on Russophobia, claiming that Russia hacked our democracy and installed a puppet in our highest office. Now, before I go any further, of course they did do that. <laughs> but the left is making it out to be some massive operation that changed the outcome of the election and or that Trump is a Soviet mole or some shit. When you look at what they actually did, it wasn't a ton. They leaked some shitty emails. And yeah, that had, a, that had an effect, but Trump didn't win on that alone. And considering the baby's first cybersecurity that the DNC has, it'd be kind of a miracle if they weren't leaked elsewhere. And when you look at it from Russia's point of view, holy shit, why would they not do it? It would be treasonous not to. Imagine your old cultural, political, military, and economic rival who you recently suffered a humiliating defeat to. Just start saying to the world, publicly, apropos of nothing, guys, we're probably going to stay basically the same, but 
We're strongly considering shitting in our pants. <laughs> of course you're gonna go around whispering in everyone's ears, Psst, shitting in your pants is cool. <laughs> it would be DNC level political incompetence not to. Will the Russians manipulate Trump to their advantage? Yes, obviously. They would be fucking insane to do otherwise. Because, but, but it's not because he's a Manchurian candidate who was in with Russia all along. It's because he's a fucking moron. Any one of us in this room could be made the leader of a country and manipulate Trump to our advantage today. He's, it's easy. He's very dumb. But the DNC just keeps hammering this Cold War-ass, evil empire conspiracy shit that does no good for vulnerable people and makes the left come across very poorly. And remember, Russia is a huge country with millions of unique people living in it, just like here. It's, to paint it as a shadowy evil dehumanizes all of those people. And sure, it's terrible that the ruler is a vicious autocrat and that there's so much state-sanctioned murder and homophobia, but like... You, you do realize who we just elected. Yeah. We're not good. <laughs> <laughs> you do know that the cop who murdered Walter Scott didn't get convicted because one juror, one rando average American from off the street, hated black people more than murder. Don't talk too much shit on Russia. We're about to know what it's like to be a good person in an evil country real soon. And that's why we all have to resist every fucking day. Yeah. It's gonna be hard. It's gonna be thankless and despairing. No one will ever give you credit. Any success will be claimed by someone else. It's gonna feel like we're doing nothing, and that's by design. But that cannot stop you. Just, yeah. Yeah, come on. Come yeah. <laughs> Oh. Just this month, public outcry allowed the Rockettes to choose to not perform at Trump's inauguration. And yeah, letting the kicking ladies stay home is not exactly the new Civil Rights Act. But goddammit, guys, it's something. So drink deep of every day we have left until January 20th. We're going to have to work together to get through this. We're going to have to reach out to our fellow Americans and form a coalition. If we try, we can bridge the political divide and push back against fascism. Just look at what happens anytime Lena Dunham does literally anything. Unity is possible. <laughs> but then again, this is also a month where one of my fellow Americans took a gun to a pizza restaurant because he was convinced that Hillary Clinton ran a satanic pedophile cult there because the national security advisor to the president told him it was true. So maybe not. Thank you, everybody. <laughs> so before we get into the, the meat of the show, the op-eds, uh, I'd like to debut a brand new bit for the skewer. Uh, this is going to be performed by New Skewer co-producer. Let's all give her a big hand. Erica Dreisbach. <laughs> Erica, I'll just let you take, I'll let you take control. What's up, everybody? So, we're gonna do some direct political action right now. 
We're going to make actual calls to actual places and leave actual voicemails. So, so in each of these voicemails, there's going to be a part where I'm like, and here's the sound of 50 people who agree with me. And then you go. But up until that point, even if I'm super funny, okay. We're going to start with calling NBC Chicago and asking them to cancel The Apprentice. This is, this is my real phone, too. I know. I know. Speakerphone. Oh, it's on speakerphone. <laughs> Hold on. programming now. This is so great. <laughs> it's electric. Yeah. Anita Johnson is her name. She leaves a really nice message. I've listened to this before. It was my prep for this bit. But it's kind of long. And I, I hope she's not the one who has to be on the receiving end of this voicemail. Okay. Hi. My name is Erica Dreisbach. I'm a citizen in Chicago. And I am calling NBC Chicago to tell you to cancel The Apprentice. It would make him so mad. I think you know what him I'm talking about. It's not Arnold Schwarzenegger. His bit is super funny, I know, but just make that president-elect so mad, because then he'll probably not uh, send a nuclear bomb someplace. He'll probably just like, oh, NBC Chicago, this is the city where he is afraid to come back to with good reason. You could just like, you know, in Second City, where I took improv classes, uh, you could pretend that you're low status and just be like, I'm so sorry, Mr. Trump. You're so smart and so good. We just lost the tapes, you know? We, we just lost the tapes. And you'd be like, oh, you guys suck. And be like, oh, we suck so much. Send us the tapes again. Oh, we lost them again. Um, so please cancel The Apprentice. I'm appealing to you first, but next I start calling your advertisers. And this is the sound of 50 people who agree with me. call Mark Kirk. Mark Kirk is the junior senator of Illinois. He lost to Tammy Duckworth. Uh, he was a one-term senator, so not, not that great. Usually senators keep winning. <laughs> not Mark Kirk. Uh, but he's actually a pretty good dude. He was, uh, he's a Naval Reserve officer. He had a stroke not too long ago. His wife divorced him after that. <laughs> Sorry, Mark Kirk, I know. But he's an outgoing Republican. He's also pro-choice. Like he represented the, the diversity of Illinois very well as a Republican. Uh, so I'm going to tell him that on his way out, he's got nothing to lose, and he should just talk a whole bunch of trash about Donald Trump. A pro tip, because I've been making a lot of these calls. Uh, if you try and call the DC phone number, you got to call during business hours, and you'll talk to a human. The DC phone numbers don't have voicemail because they're smart, because they don't want to hear from people like me after hours. 
But uh, all these guys have many phone numbers. They'll have like a Janesville office or a Roanoke office or blah, 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 and those all have voicemail. So um, you can call those numbers. And uh, if you see on your table, there's a little piece of paper where you can make your own anti-fascist voicemail op-eds. So I've got some notes on there too, like, oh, press zero to, to get to the next, to leave a message. So I, I did a little of the grunt work for you, which is really super nice of me. Um, let's call Mark Kirk, whose Chicago office, they're like boarding up the fax machine. Oh, no, wait. Oh, it's Tammy Duckworth now. Oh, shit. Oh, fuck. Oh, sorry. Oh, boy. Okay, I Sorry, Tammy. I got a whole different thing for Tammy, but it's not this, like, uh, sorry, Tammy, you didn't win. Uh, so I can do my Jan Schakowsky showstopper now, or I can do it later. What do you want? I'm going to do... All right, Jan... Start the show right at the start. Okay, but I'm going to get really real on Jan Schakowsky, okay? So she's not the representative here. She's the representative in Edgewater and Evanston. And I just, I happened to look at her Facebook in December, and her big victory post on Facebook was that she's keeping us safe from IKEA shelves. Oh. And I was like, are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> the daughter of Lithuanian press. I don't give one fuck. No, I should say this to the voicemail. Anyway, so that's what you should know. They're the mom shelves. <laughs> and she was like, I'm keeping us safe. And I was like, you're not, no, Jane. This is her shit. In defense of all stuff. It's no. true. No. It's no. true. No. 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 I don't care if Malm had like an active taser on it. Like, that is not what I want you caring about, Jan. Get ready, Goss. memory is that it was like really fast. <laughs> it's like what I wrote in my notes, like, oh, this is a good one. Okay. Okay. So this is like a nice staffer who's going to be on the receiving end of this. Hello, my name is Eric Dreisbach. I'm a citizen in Evanston, or rather just south of Evanston in Chicago, Illinois. I'm calling because I happened to see recently on Jan Schakowsky's Facebook page that her major victory right now in Congress is that she's keeping us safe from the malm shelves of Ikea. Now, Ikea shelves are not even in my top 100 concerns right now. The only thing I want to be hearing from Representative Jan Schakowsky is what she is doing to oppose the Trump administration. What I want to hear is about how she's drafting legislation to undo some of the war powers that a president has in order to imprison someone indefinitely. I want to hear that she just hired the Ken Starr of our generation. I want to hear that she's going to Newt Gingrich him. 
I want to hear all of that, how she is opposing him at every turn. And if I hear that, well, I voted for her twice, and I look forward to voting for her in 2018. But if I don't hear that, I'm going to be looking to her opposition. And if I don't see strong opposition, then I'm going to run against Jan. I don't have a day job, Jan. <laughs> this is my day job now. And this is the sound of 40 people in Chicago who agree with me. Did like ten people who I didn't see leave during <laughs> during that bit? You said fifty, then whatever. I think that was a rousing success. Yeah, yeah. Should we do that more in future shows? Okay. Goodness. Uh, so you, you might have seen that and been like, "That looked really fun. That looks pretty easy, just talking on a phone." How about you all? Um, do that, but to a human, like tomorrow. Is that, is that something y'all want to do? Yeah. Is that something you should do? You should be doing. Okay, enough of that. Let's go on to the part that's jokes. The op-eds of the evening. Our first op-ed reader uh, was a writing teacher at DePaul. He now works as a cubicle man at a telecom company. Uh, <laughs> he, oh, man. The things he does to the keyboard, presses the buttons on them specifically, you wouldn't believe. Uh, he's also been a frequent contributor to my pop culture podcast, You Don't Understand. Everyone, welcome Joe Anderson. Hello, everyone. Hi, Hi Joe. Hi. Hello. Uh, Jane's my representative, and I'm just saying since she took office, I've not been killed in an Ikea accident. <laughs> so... Um, so, uh, after the election, I felt some feelings. I watched Mad Max, and I thought, this doesn't seem so bad. <laughs> These people have hobbies, like finding clean water and concussions. <laughs> to be clear, I did not pull Alina Dunham and cry in the shower. I will admit, though, that on December 5th, I spaced out so bad while showering that I spent 10 minutes just rubbing shampoo into my face. <laughs> I got lost thinking about how underwhelming the Clinton campaign was and how two 12-year-olds in a trench coat could have won Wisconsin. <laughs> but in the wake of anything, uh, everything, there's been some much-needed discussion about the idea of the liberal echo chamber, especially as it relates to comedy and satire. For about a week following the election, I firmly believed every Last Week Tonight segment should be renamed to John Oliver Agrees With You for 56 Minutes. <laughs> Truthfully though, Last Week Tonight is an incredibly well-researched show and one that has pretty nuanced takes. It does not wallow in clapter, where audiences laugh and clap not because it's actually funny, but because their sensibilities have been affirmed. No, the biggest purveyor on, of clapter on this planet is garbage humorist and worst employee at the New Yorker, Andy Borowitz. Which is why the news item I want to discuss is every fucking thing Borowitz wrote in December. I like the New Yorker. Specifically, I like reading it. 
I know it's very brave of me to come out as pro reading, but uh, I just want to say that the act of reading. Uh, my point is, though, I do really enjoy The New Yorker. Um, however, The New Yorker's tagline is, the best writing anywhere, everywhere. And this is bullshit. <laughs> and it's patently bullshit because of Andy Borowitz and his toothless satirical column, The Borowitz Report. For those that don't know, Andy Borowitz created the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air at the age of 32, which, no snark, is a genuinely impressive creative accomplishment. I'm 28, and the only thing I want to accomplish before 32 is die on a blimp. <laughs> the Fresh Prince was a cultural touchstone of the 90s, and the memorization of its theme song is a badge of honor for those who were raised by television instead of loving parents. <laughs> However, in 2001, Borowitz, sorry. Uh, in 2001, Borowitz launched the Borowitz Report, a satirical news column. And for the last 15 years, he has subjected the world to lexical miscarriages disguised as satire. First off, the Borowitz Report, the name is dog shit. If Tom was like, hey, I'm going to call the opening monologue the Harrison Report, we would be legally obligated to throw shoes at him until we broke him, either physically or spiritually. The last name plus report formula only worked for Colbert because the character was a self-important Bill O'Reilly spoof. Anyway, here's a list of the satirical news items Andy Borowitz produced last month. Poll, Americans favor keeping Air Force One and canceling Trump. Ben Carson warns that Bible makes no mention of housing or urban development. Inauguration protesters plan to surround White House to keep Obama from leaving. Putin agrees to receive intelligent briefings in Trump's place. <laughs> that was very good. <laughs> uh, Trump to split time before Trump Tower and Kremlin. He had one, and then he like really ran to the ground. Uh, Obama signs executive order requiring President of the United States to be taxpayer. Uh, Obama politely asks Trump to wait until inauguration before destroying the world. Uh, the last one is especially bad because it manages to work in a dig at George W. in the opening sentence. It reads, Obama cited the example of George W. Bush, who waited until he took office before wreaking destruction on a massive scale. I don't like using my mouth to say that. Uh, and Rock Against Bush was very 2004. Uh, I was going to do a thing where I sent some Chicago writers links to his articles, asking them to document the exact place to stop reading and collect their responses for everybody. Uh, but I decided against it. And I decided against it because the first response I got back was, why, have I wronged you? <laughs> Borowitz's fake news articles do not contain jokes. These flaccid accomplishments are the first ideas you jot down on a napkin. At best, these headlines exist to be written on a whiteboard so that they can later be crossed off and not used. <laughs> Please understand that the Borowitz report is the humorous equivalent of that older guy at work who makes six figures but doesn't know how to rotate a PDF. The Borowitz Report is the prose embodiment of a Woody Allen stammer, and he, the author, is an unfortunate typo of a man, a real pubic library. His takes on current events hinge on low-hanging topical fruit, fruit that hangs so low it ceases to be fruit. They're vegetables or tubers or sort of exhausting fungus. Andy Borowitz, I curse you, you goddamn page-a-day Dilbert calendar of a person. <laughs> if I could take something from this world and take with it even the memory of that thing, 
so that the world could continue forward with no possibility of that thing ever existing again, it would be the words that sit rotting in Andy Borowitz's mouth. <laughs> what I'm trying to say is that I do not know what happens when you die, but I want Andy Borowitz to find out. <laughs> Full disclosure, does anything else upset me as much as the Boris report? No. <laughs> uh, my list of least favorite things goes Borowitz, uh, the comic strip Ziggy, <laughs> and then racism, I guess. The <laughs> uh, now defunct Gawker.com torn asunder by a lawsuit about Hulk Hogan's dick. <laughs> Once described Borowitz as a hack New Yorker satirist who has waged war of attrition on the very idea of comedy. <laughs> I agree with this in spirit, but Borowitz is not a hack. He aspires to be a hack. <laughs> I believe hackery often comes from a place of insecurity. When you are confident about your own ideas, hack jokes and hack writing are appealing because they're, although obvious, are guaranteed to elicit some sort of favorable response. Case in point, see every comment about how uh, in 2016 it was going to last one second longer due to the rotation of the Earth. A joke for the record, Borowitz made on his Facebook page. <laughs> to their credit, hack jokes at least make you feel something. Maybe you laugh, maybe you roll your eyes, maybe they leave a bad taste in your mouth. The Borowitz report does not make you feel anything except limp dick agreement. <laughs> The thing that is so appalling about the Boris report is that you just know in your heart of hearts he thinks he's killing it. He's oblivious to his own bullshit because his dumb words are affiliated with the New Yorker. <laughs> he has no reason to be reflective. There is a non-zero chance that in 2018 someone will be jailed on account of talking like a queer and this motherfucker is still going to be making jokes about how Trump says huge. Trump has been the subject of boards of satire since the beginning of the election cycle. Since it all began, Trump has insulted pretty much anyone who's been critical of him. I don't need to list them here, but the two most recent targets of his Twitter ire were Vanity Fair because of a bad review of his restaurant, and Chuck Jones, the carrier union leader, who had the audacity to point out that 700 jobs is a different number than 1,100 jobs. <laughs> The single most damning evidence against Borowitz is that Trump has never attacked him on Twitter, despite <laughs> Borowitz making fun of him for a year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. There is one positive thing about the Borowitz report, though. Language is changing fast. The Borowitz report is not. There is some comfort in that. For instance, the alt-right often refers to the newly emboldened white nationalists but also sometimes refers to dudes with Twitter avatars of big titty anime girls. <laughs> Fake news, depending on the speaker, can mean actual propaganda disseminated through Facebook, or it can just mean an article that says something you don't like, even if it's accurately sourced. The alt-left is now a term I see being thrown around online, and I'm not sure if that means actual leftists, which have been a vocal alternative to Democrats' walk-heavy and largely new liberal policies, or something else that also involves anime. <laughs> The meaning of the word swamp has also changed in public discourse. It now only refers to as a source of black manna. <laughs> Any man who does something beta is a cuck. And, and what is considered beta is determined by the most alpha person in the room. Alphahood is achieved through the alchemation of alpha points, 
which as far as I can tell are earned by saying gross shit to waitresses. <laughs> so as we enter this brave new world, I find two things oddly comforting. The first is that eventually, we'll die. The second is that the Boris report will remain a time capsule of mediocrity, harking back to a simpler time. A more straightforward era where his satire just sucked instead of grossly failing to articulate the true insanity around us in an even remotely interesting way. Thank you. Come on, keep it going for show. That was uh, Joe, I really appreciated you putting the phrase exhausting fungus into your piece because as you and all, all mutual friends of ours know, that is what I call you exclusively. Uh, I'm calling in his name tonight as a courtesy that I hate to do. Anyway, our next op-ed reader is a stand-up comic uh, who produces the Chicago comedy and storytelling show Solid Hilarity which uh, fundraises for union and activist groups. Please welcome Arish Singh. Hey, everybody. Um, last month saw the first college speaking engagement of Richard Spencer, uh, the neo-Nazi who claims to have originated the term outright, and who went viral in a video in which several suit-wearing white supremacists said highly in response to his address in Washington, D.C., uh, which ended with, Hail Trump, Hail Victory. Uh, he was able to make his first college engagement. I, if you're not familiar with uh, seg highling, as I've used it here, it's the ultimate way for a white person to screw up daddy. <laughs> like your sneezing, like your sneezing, all right? Anyway, dabbing is over, so we can... Dabbing is out, Nazism is in, apparently. But, uh, uh, and while it may seem encouraging to see Spencer greet with protests, uh, the challenge of dealing with him is going to be an ongoing affair, as he has promised to indefinitely seek out more college-speaking engagements as part of his determined effort at popularizing his, his strain of Nazi ideology among young people, uh, what he describes as making racism cool again. Uh, I'm awaiting a Pepe the Frog cartoon where the protagonist is like, anti-Semitism is awesome. That's kind of that's what I take away from making racism cool again, uh, as a statement. Uh, be, be on the lookout for uh, a lot of great outright programming in our future. Uh, the press uh, has been struggling with how to deal with the outright, uh, not just with the ideology it represents, but the term itself, uh, which seems to sanitize politics backed by a racist ideology. In response, several publications now include explicit disclaimers describing the outright as nothing more than glorified Nazis, uh, which I... I think it's pretty dead on. Uh, Fusion is one of such publication. Um, it has adopted such a policy. But in, in an exercise in completely missing the point, uh, the article they published in response to Spencer's visit to Texas A&M was, not just Nazis, out genres have always been safe spaces for white people. <laughs> a headline that was featured above a photo of the notorious radical white supremacist rock star Michael Stipe of R.E.M. Uh, you might remember Michael Stipe from songs like uh, What's the Frequency Capo, uh, uh, Happy Shiny Nazis, uh, Everybody Hurts But Only White People Matter, uh, that people's memories. Uh, so yes, uh, Fusion decided the way to fight Nazis was with a jeremade against the whiteness of 90s college rock. Uh, 
Uh, this article begins by describing the need to not normalize figures like Spencer's, and then in appropriate navel-gazing fashion, uh, belonging to any self-respecting publication that caters to their reader's own sense of learnedness over their political engagement, uh, the article quickly digresses into addressing the etymological meaning of the prefix out. The article discusses a blog post by Marion Webster describing the term as signifying rebellion against the traditions of a genre while clearly belonging to it, using examples like out-country and out-comedy. Uh, the author takes this digression even further. Again, we start out with not normalizing Nazis. Uh, goes even further uh, to talking about how out-genres have a history of creating safe spaces for whites, essentially facilitating music companies' uh, desire to reach uh, white consumers, and goes on to outline a critique in this fashion of out-rock, out-country, out-rap, uh, and out-soul, out-soul, the genres. Um, accepting the irrelevance of such a critique to responding to Nazi politics, there is merit in a critique of how record companies repackage music by people of color through adaptation by white artists, uh, aimed primarily uh, at white audiences, in the context of the US, uh, mostly being African-American music. Uh, but uh, even here, the article uh, botches that. Uh, this is true even putting aside, again, the previously mentioned juxtaposition of Michael Stipe with the activist Bigot Spencer. Uh, Michael Stipe, as some people may know, was one of the most prominent um, musicians in the 90s to identify as queer, uh, not to assign himself to any kind of gay or hetero or any other kind of label, but just ex as queer here. I'll put it as uh, labels are for soup cans. Um, and put that aside, I mean, that could be the fault of some lazy editor. Uh, but the author herself, Molly Ellsberg, makes plenty of glaring stumbles all on her own. Uh, she tries to create a dichotomy between Chuck D and the white alternative uh, legitimacy of Rage Against the Machine, completely ignoring the group's prominent black and Hispanic members, Tom Morello and Zach De La Rocha. Uh, there's also an attempt to claim that Conscious Rap, a name which peaked in popularity in the early 90s and late 80s, is somehow the result of 2000s-era music bloggers and record execs, which sounds like the lamest plot to a time travel movie I can imagine. Um, and it goes on to make the claim that Dead Prez uh, was marketed to white sensibilities. Dead Prez, a group who wrote a song explicitly about the thrill of robbing white people. <laughs> in, in gratuitous detail. Fantastic song. I'll check it out. Uh, uh, but my particular favorite offhand uh, comment was that white kids avoided Tupac because of his political sensibilities. Um, that, I can't verify that claim, but it did lead me to a new admiration for the political astuteness of the attendance of many white Duke keggers that I've been to in the past. Where everyone broke out in unison uh, once California Love was put on the radio. Very conscious people, apparently. Um, uh, it's, it's almost as if Osberg, uh, a white woman, was not terribly familiar with the music she was writing about and was just offering a shooting from the hip, snarky takedown of some other white person's music collection she resents. Uh, and that's really the deepest irony of this article. It's white status competition repackaged as anti-racism. Uh, first, let's go back to uh, the out prefix. Uh, if you ever followed out music, it never signified a distinction between whites and people of color, so much as it did one between highbrow and lowbrow whites, high-class and low-class white people. Just consider the first genre um, considered in this particular piece, out-rock, uh, out uh, perhaps better described as college rock or indie rock. It was a reaction to the commercialism and cliché quality of 80s cock rock and 90s butt rock. Uh, Valerie was striving for music 
that could be described with other parts of the human body. Uh, but in seriousness, this, this highlights the, uh, the creative top rock and bot rock fans. Uh, but, but to be serious, this kind of highlights the other aspect of Al, which is a legitimate creative artist's interest, where it's not just about white kid cool, as Osberg puts it, uh, but to try to make music that stretched the bounds of what was commercially successful, even if it ended up uh, being too overwrought or too twee. Shout out um, to uh, the multi -peaches. Uh If there was any marketing incentive that came along with uh, the genre, it was simply marketing to uh, whites uh, over people of color. Uh, but marketing to upper, sorry, <laughs> if there was any marketing incentive here, it wasn't to simply to marketing to whites rather than people of color. It was to marketing, it was to market to uh, upper middle class whites or whites willing to spend money on music or even to those looking to climb uh, the status ladder, mostly again amongst whites. Um, to illustrate, I once had a roommate who bought an entire Arcade Fire album collection after being mocked for his Maroon 5 CDs. Um, <laughs> to which I, of course, responded, uh, isn't Arcade Fire kind of played out? Uh, yeah. I know the status treadmill. I know where it is. Uh, I'm, uh, <laughs> the best part of hitness is out hipping someone, right? Um, but back to back to the point. This whole genre of the article uh, that Osberg wrote, uh, dubbed on Twitter as uh, "I'm the only non-racist white" by a left-wing social and political critic, is in fact just another level to this mostly white status struggle. It flatters whites who identify not only in highbrow taste, but who are also ostensibly woke. Uh, an entire identity they can use to posture, posture against yeah. more oblivious white people yes. uh, <laughs> who may share their highbrow taste, but not, they, but not that. So one has to ask um, how such status posturing uh, even help affects people of color or is it helpful to them. Uh, I would, in fact, argue that it's a detriment um, being a performer who's often working in rooms that are labeled out comedy and being repeatedly told afterwards why I'm not doing more uh, Indian material. Uh, it, it kind of makes the whole idea of out as uh, being um, anti-commercial and striving for something more as outside the bounds um, of people of color. I think this is the ultimately the effect uh, uh, that comes from this kind of rhetoric. Though um, I do, I do appreciate to some extent, I can understand that uh, this kind of article, and it's been of a collection of articles here, leads to potentially more diverse roster of artists, but this seems in its own effect uh, a kind of tokenism um, uh, rather than to integrate people. Uh, this is also something I've experienced uh, being someone of color on lineups um, and being decried by people afterwards for uh, or being criticized as, as only being on the lineup because I am a person of color. Uh, this kind of politics, I think, has kind of uh, gone to, has kind of exceeded its worth. Uh, it's it's got to move forward from this point. But back to the point at hand, how does any of this function as a way to fight back against the era of right-wing extremism we're entering? One with not just Nazis, but where we're going to have a president who is able to decry, uh, to uh, claim that... Uh, Thousands and thousands of Muslims were cheering uh, during the 9-11 attacks. Jersey City, uh, New Jersey Muslims were cheering on during those attacks. Where you can basically typify a whole uh, ethnic group in your country as a fifth column. Uh, the kind of racism we're dealing with can't be held uh, accountable by articles that just talk about the scene being too white. Uh, there is a deep, there's a deep irony here uh, that I think should be appreciated where 
You have someone with white identity politics that relies on explicit racism like Spencer's, um, and then the anti-racist response being nothing more than its own white identity politics. When we're highbrow is cast versus lowbrow, uh, we're woke is cast against non-woke. Um, rather than publishing an article like this, one that's basically better spent considering how to, wouldn't it be better to consider how to offset the right-wing uh, attempts to mainstream racism on college campuses? Uh, while Spencer and his ilk may be more inclined to jerk off to anime than actually instigate a race riot, uh, the purveyors of the alt-right are quite explicit in their goals to reach young people. And if you've got your eye on social media, they are working to make their own brand of humor, some use their own brand of music, uh, their own subculture. Rather than an ill-informed rehash of music's decades old, might it not be better to invest time considering what a left counterculture might look like, one that could function as a counterweight to this right-wing extremism, one that in fact is based on the music that is popular today? Uh, or even going further, why not attack the heart of the real politics signified by the prefix out? One that divides between low class and high class? Why not consider how art can overturn such divides to create a real anti-racist culture that can take on the extremism of our era? One that speaks to both race and class politics. However, such class conscious writing may not be so well suited to an outlet like Fusion, who as late as this October was still struggling to quash an effort by its staff to unionize. Uh, perhaps the most abused modifier in our era is not out, but left wing, as in Fusion is a left wing news outlet. Thank you very much. Thank you, Eric Singh. Gosh, when it comes to music as a cultural signifier, I don't know if listening to a ton of Carly Rae Jepsen makes me woke. I don't know if it makes me a Nazi, but I do know it makes me a cuck. <laughs> anyway, I like to say, Cuck has a lot of negative attributes baked into it, but it is a hilarious word. Like, say it all the time to yourself, just like, cuck. <laughs> anyway, our next op-ed reader is, has been published in the Chicago Reader, Jezebel Hobart and Bitch Magazine. Uh, she writes a bunch of zines, including one about the never-ending story and the latest issue of her memoir zine, Coffee Spoons. Came out last month, and Facebook, as you believe, you can get it at Quimby's and Lori's Planet of Sound. Megan Kirby, everybody. Yeah. What? Yeah. Hi. Woo. Hello. Yes. Kendall Jenner wants to do something about gun violence. It's unclear what exactly she wants to do about gun violence, only that she is against it. And she's conflicted, because activism doesn't really mesh with her brand. I'm watching Keeping Up with the Kardashians from bed in a Philadelphia Sheraton. I'm in town on a work conference, and this is the first time I've had a hotel room to myself, which is pretty exciting. In between sessions on higher education strategic marketing, I walk through Philly's historic district. 
I stare through a big glass window at the Liberty Bell because I don't want to wait in line to see it up close. <laughs> and I think about how fucked up it is that Donald Trump is our president-elect. My coworker and I walk to Love Park so I can take a picture in front of the statue. And when we get there, it's flooded with protesters. She takes my picture anyway. I look on my phone and regret the photo immediately. My benign tourist smile as people hoist signs in the background. We walk alongside the protesters for half a mile. I'm feeling jet lagged and sad and scared. And when I return to the hotel room and see my favorite show is on, I actually laugh out loud because it's such a relief. I know the Kardashians are not the most important thing to think about right now, but I love the Kardashians. <laughs> and here they were, the Kardashians who are not my friends, but sort of feel like they are, and that I'm always pretty happy to see them. The tourists at the love statue, the protesters in the streets, an overarching sense of despair, an episode of the Kardashians. I'm confused lately about what to do about the things I like. I'm a 26-year-old woman with a Kimoji phone case. <laughs> but since the election, I've been thinking a lot about where I put my energy. I've been thinking about how a reality show helped mold Donald Trump's public persona into someone the American people elected into office. I've been thinking about the blurring of fact and opinion, how reality is suddenly a subjective term. And when I get really stressed out, I just want to watch RuPaul's Drag Race in my bed. And I know this isn't a productive response, but it won't go away. So what's the role of reality TV in the age of Trump? And what's the responsibility of the reality TV lover? Here's the truth. I'm probably not going to stop watching reality TV. And I'm not going to stop writing about it. But I am going to stop pretending reality TV is greater than what it actually is. Oh, it does? Oh, sorry. <laughs> it's OK that I like keeping up with the Kardashians, but it's not important that I do. Entertainment can be important but it's not that important right now. For the past few years, I've mostly been writing about pop culture. In 2016, I wrote two long-form pieces about Kylie Jenner's Snapchat. <laughs> A few weeks ago, my dad called me and said he'd read my blog when I cooled it on the Kardashian post. <laughs> and I said, Dad, I'm an adult, and you can't tell me what to do. Yeah. <laughs> My brother and I love to argue with him about the merits of reality TV, and my dad scoffs and rolls his eyes. He's an old school journalist from the days when the newsroom was just a cloud of cigarette smoke, and he does not care at all what's on E. I used to tell him I followed Kardashians like a soap opera with all of its plot twists and betrayals, but I have a new metaphor now. Watching reality TV is the same as watching sports. You have your favorite players. You keep track of the score. It's fun to feel an allegiance to a team. I haven't told my dad that metaphor yet, and I don't think it's going to go over that well. <laughs>
But in this age of hot take journalism, it's important to keep things separate. Reality TV entertains, but entertainment doesn't equal enlightenment. And watching Kardashians doesn't make me a better person or a worse person. It does nothing good or bad for the world. It's like playing around with mini golf or taking an afternoon nap when you're not really tired. Something that passes the time just fine, but doesn't really accomplish anything. Over-exaggerating the relevance of things is a problem of hot take journalism. It's an issue with media other than reality TV too. The idea that passively engaging in something can replace activism. In 2016, we largely got a pass to label things as self-care or hashtag feminism. To pretend that taking selfies or listening to Taylor Swift or following Lena Dunham on Instagram were tools of resistance. Right. It's the third Lena Dunham joke tonight. <laughs> and then 53% of white women voted for Donald Trump. Yeah. I used to think watering down feminism for mainstream audiences was better than nothing. And now I think I was wrong. Time to come clean. I used to write a lot of feminist hot takes. You can find my byline in the exalted halls of Exo Jane. It's pretty easy to master that formula. The brassy know-it-all voice. The precise moment three quarters of the way through an article. When you throw in a reference to your childhood home as a way to really manipulate that emotional curve. <laughs> I wrote them until I started feeling sleazy. And then I kept writing them because I really needed those $50 checks that never showed up in and I wrote them until I got a full-time job. And now I see how dangerous this kind of clickbait can be. The idea that if you state your opinion loud enough, you don't need to back it up with facts. The think piece bubble is broken, and the time for debating if Kim Kardashian is a feminist role model is done. I love gossip mags, the PR-sanctioned interviews, the pictures of stars acting just like us, and the chance to decide once and for all who wore it better. My dad thinks celebrity news is destroying the country, but I think it just is what it is. Glossy, vapid, okay to read at the airport. And like any kind of media, it can be used for bad. I saw a cover the other week gasping about Melania Trump's lavish parties. Obviously, that is bad. On the flip side, what is good celebrity gossip? It's still mostly meaningless. I can tell you every detail of the Taylor Swift Tom Hiddleston affair from the summer of 2016. <laughs> <laughs> but that doesn't make me better or smarter or stronger than I was before I saw those pictures of them kissing on the beach. Yes. <laughs> I'm not going to apologize for knowing a lot about Hiddle Swift. <laughs> I'm just going to let it be a quiet fact of who I am. <laughs> like my shoe size. <laughs> or my mild pineapple allergy. <laughs> but I do believe it's okay to enjoy things for just existing and not for some latent reason. In doing research for this piece, which mostly meant reading recaps about The Bachelor, 
I dug out so many pseudo-academic articles about the real reasons people tune in week to week to the real housewives of wherever. Pieces like these try to defend low culture by making excuses or academic explanations. But I think that's condescending bullshit. It's okay to just like something without having to constantly validate it. You don't have to pretend it's something it's not. I feel weird about a lot of stuff I like right now. A lot of things feel unimportant, but I know that even as we fight, we still live our lives. Sometimes that means moments of joy or fear or boredom. Sometimes it means missing the bus or calling your congressman on your lunch break or getting food poisoning or setting the DVR to record your favorite show. In the face of tragedy, other facts of life remain. The Kardashians are a fairy tale of money and privilege. And I don't want to bullshit you by saying we need escapism or fantasy or distraction right now, because I'm not sure we really do. We don't need reality TV, but sometimes we want it. Sometimes we want a morning in sweatpants or a fast food breakfast or a season of Vanderpump Rules on Hulu. <laughs> that day in the hotel back in Philly, I watched Kendall decide she was going to take a stand by going to lunch with some gun violence survivors. <laughs> sure. <laughs> that episode was pretty bad, I texted a friend back home. The following week, I watched the next episode. Sometimes you just gotta keep up. Thank you. Nice. Keep it going for Megan Kirby. Fantastic. Oh goodness. Three Lena Dunham jokes and two independent usages of the word lover. What a night. Anyway, our final op-ed reader of the evening uh, is a writer and comic. She is the uh, co-founder of the excellent, critically acclaimed stand-up collective Simmer Brown that has been uh, lauded in the Tribune and Chicago Reader. Their next show is January 21st at the Bug House Theater. Uh, she was in the Chicago Reader's Best of Chicago Comedy 2016. Please welcome Samina Mustafa. <laughs> Thank you, it's exciting. This is actually my first time here. So this is cool. I am going to talk about a topic that's near and dear to my heart. Pantsuit Nation. Who's <laughs> ever familiar with Pantsuit Nation? And we look at that. Okay. You guys are woke to Pantsuit shenanigans. Uh, so for the one or two people who did not howl and enjoy, um, <laughs> let me just describe what it is to you. Since we have people listening at home, is that correct, Tom? That is correct. That well, is correct. Extensively, we don't yeah. know for sure. Yeah. Let's just go with there are. Yeah. Let's just go. Let's just go with that. Let's assume that. So uh, I describe Pantsuit Nation as this kind of conglomeration of women who supported and were excited about the idea of Hillary as the first woman president. It was a secret Facebook group started by a woman named Libby 
Chamberlain of Maine. Uh, I think that's like a perfect name for her. I just imagine all these people saying, oh my god, your name is Libby, like women's Libby. Oh my god. Um, as everyone here has pointed out, uh, she did not win. Um, I do read newspapers too, it's a, it's a bad habit. And uh, when, when she did not win, Pantu Nation became kind of an online therapy group. And there's a lot of people upset, like there was a group of four million mostly women who were motivated, were excited, and could have been mobilized to do something, like win an election. But that's, those were not the rules. There were a lot of rules that Libby had. And you know what? I have a special surprise for all of you. I actually flew Libby in on my own dime, and she's gonna tell you about the rules and a little bit more about Pantsu Nation. Do you guys wanna hear that? Okay, so this is her first time in Chicago, so I'm gonna, she's right back there. I'm just gonna go get her, and when she comes out, please just give her a warm Chicago-style welcome. Okay, guys? Just, just bear with me here. Logan Square, is that right? Yeah! I've never been to Chicago. Um, and I didn't have any pantsuits that weren't matchy-matchy. So, so Samina let me use some of her clothes. Do I look, do I look good? How do I look? Yeah, you look I'm not, I'm not. I've got two kids. I forgot how to do my hair. Um, <laughs> You know, it's funny, I thought Chicago would look really different from Maine. It really doesn't. <laughs> Except for you, ma'am, and you, sir. Yeah, you guys, I don't see as many as Okay. Oh, you know what, so Samina said I need to go over the rules and tell you a little bit about Pants Nation. You want to do that? Does that sound good? Okay, let's do that. So here are the rules. I did them as do's and don'ts. Um, so do post personal, original, positive stories, testimonials, and videos. Don't post any unoriginal content. I guess that's pretty self-explanatory. <laughs> do go high. <laughs> Don't be mean. Don't be mean. <laughs> These are the actual rules. I'm just reading them. Um, but I had to revise them a little because people started breaking the rules. So I said, I had to clarify and say, no unoriginal content articles, memes, links, videos, petitions, quotations, breaking news, links to other Facebook groups. Um, please also do not edit your approved post to include fundraising links. And... Please don't offer your own Pantsuit Nation merchandise 
or solicit members for political donations. That's not what we're here for. <laughs> that is not what we're here for. Or calls to action, that's not what we're doing. <laughs> You're saying we're not here to raise money? No, we don't want to do that. That would take up all the time we want to do watching YouTube videos on how to put on the safety pin right. <laughs> <laughs> major election coming up, could you stop just posting pictures of yourself in a pantsuit? But I was like, it is so fun. Um, and I want the people of Chicago and Logan Square to know that we are inclusive, that we really were doing our dentist. Um If you wear a hijab with your pantsuit, we, God, we, we're, we're here for you too. Um, <laughs> And it was kind of funny because every couple of days someone would post that we show, should show solidarity with someone by wearing a hijab. And then they would post those handy YouTube videos to show you how to wear it. It was so cool. Um, and then I went uh, to the mall and I saw Muslim women and I went up to them with my hijab and my safety pin and I said, I'm a I think it worked. <laughs> You're wondering though, like there's all this stuff going on. Is there are other groups? I will acknowledge. There's like this whole March on Washington thing. <laughs> oh my god, so so cute. But I gotta just tell, and the women in the room, I hope you understand this. Have you ever tried to march or stand in a pantsuit for a long time? <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's how I got a yeast infection. <laughs> okay. You know, there are some people who are saying there's a lot of controversy and that we don't address race very well. But I gotta tell you something. We don't need strong language. We don't need divisive language, right? Where are my finger snappers in the back? I heard you guys are like, <laughs> I'm like, is Chicago not going to give me any finger snaps? <laughs> you, guys, do you guys have chowder here? I want to <laughs> I am from Maine. I said that. Um, we are trying so hard, so hard to be inclusive, that it is hard for us to multitask. <laughs> It, do you know how hard it is to read a Facebook post that has like a thousand comments and then toggle over to a Google page? <laughs> that is why on one Facebook post by a person of color, that's POC! <laughs> uh, there are multiple people asking, what's POC? Because we're so focused! Um, and so when a woman of color, that's W-O-C for you newbies, um, posts that she wants to make sure that Panther Nation is safe, um, it's, it's because uh, we're really trying really hard to be inclusive. We're just so focused. 
Um, I'm gonna let this room in on a little secret. Because it came up so much, we actually thought about changing the name of Pansu Nation to POC, what's POC, but... Um, <laughs> I didn't think that was inclusive enough, because then it's all about the POCs. Um, <laughs> Okay, I've been getting a lot of criticism. You know, people will always, they're always, what did, what did Taylor Swift say? They're always haters, haters. I've got haters, people, I've got haters. But I have some exciting news. Um, does everyone want to hear the exciting things that Pantsu Nation is working on? Yeah. yeah, okay, okay. I'm beyond excited to share that we have a coffee table book. I know we said no businesses, but we thought everyone has a coffee table. <laughs> and have you tried to shop for a centerpiece? I mean, really. What do you do, gourds or, um, you know, what do you do, gourds or like branches? I mean, it's so hard. So we thought this book is got, just going to be chock full of stories, and it's going to just be gorgeous, and you'll find inspiration every day. Um, uh, like I said on Facebook, it's so snuggle embeddable. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Please don't use that phrase, I'm going to trademark that. Um, and then, obviously, we're going to do a pantsuit line. Duh! <laughs> so obvious. Um... We, uh, we've got ones that are come built in with Spanx. <laughs> and for those of you who um, have, uh, has, have husbands that are, are rather um, on the alt-right side, they come with detachable white hoods. Um, in case you want to join your town's victory march. Uh, so, uh, and, and for those of you who want to enhance your figure, it does come, up with, come with a push-up bra. We know those are patriarchal standards of beauty, but we're not trying to rock the boat here. Um, but I'm gonna, the, the, the last thing we're working on, I'm so excited about. And you're thinking like, what are you working on? A campaign to get more women in office? <laughs> An organization that could lobby members of Congress and state legislatures to affect real change for women on issues like reproductive health and equal pay. <laughs> uh, you are so adorable when you're being ideal idealistic, Chicago. You're so cute. Um, or a fund that could support organizations that serve women and girls. Oh, that's just poppycock. I'm sorry. I'm from Maine. I'm so sorry. Um, <laughs> The real project we're really excited about is a new TV show called The Real Housewives of Pantsuit Nation! <laughs> I'm sensing a lack of enthusiasm today. I'm sensing a lack of enthusiasm. All the proceeds will go... Well, we'll figure that out. Uh, <laughs> I'm on that. Uh, well, I'm just excited about it because um, it would have been lovely to have Hillary join us, but she has been so busy um, with Chelsea and taking long walks. Um, 
Um, but so I'm going to be the Hillary. Uh, I will be the woman in charge of the perfect pants out all to, at all times. Perfectly coiffed and, and made up for the White House and Goldman Sachs boardrooms. Um, you can never be too camera ready. Uh, we'll also have our own version of Elizabeth Warren. But, we, but, but we're an open group, we're nonpartisan. So we um, have to feature women across the swamp, as it were. Um, we're going to have Ann Coulter. Now, I know she's not a housewife, she's not married, but we thought it would be so nice for her to maybe meet someone to the show and finally settle down. I think she would, would not be so angry anymore. You know, she seems like kind of a sad lady. Um, and then America's favorite kooky, sexy grandma, Sarah Palin. That would be fun. I would love to go shopping with her just to figure out how to coordinate outfits with those cool glasses. Um, and then I'm, you know, I'm getting kind of up there in my year, so um, I'm. It seems like there's a lot of Lena Dunham fans in this room. <laughs> Am I sensing that? I'm getting that. Oh my God, she is so generous. She's taking a break from her tone deaf interviews and online chats. <laughs> And she is going to, this is a secret only you in Chicago know, she's going to get an abortion on air. We're so excited. Oh my God, we're so excited. We're so excited. Um, and then we're just, just to mix it up age-wise, we're going to have Tommy Lauren because we really don't have enough angry white right-wing blondes on the show. So um, we're just so excited about it. I just can picture our first slumber party where we braid our hair on Trump TV. Um, but, you know... I just wanted everyone in the Pantsuit Nation, all the Pantsuit Nationalists, to join me. Uh, you know, I hear Samina, just hang on, I'll be I am so sorry, you guys. <laughs> Libby is a bitch. <laughs> oh my god. I, we are done with the Libby's of the world. We are so done. Um, she's going back on a plane to Maine. I don't care. I'll just put her on a mega bus. I don't give a fuck. Um, here's my sh the, the bottom line that I feel about Pantsuit Nation. If I see one more post of a woman in hijab, scared for her life, being hugged by a woman in a pack suit, I'm going to lose it. And guys, I'm on plenty of lists already, so I really don't need the trouble. Um, but I just, my, my takeaway for everybody is, let's, let's just heed the words of, of our, our uh, could have been president. Uh, I want everybody coming out from behind that group and make sure your voices are heard going forward. Let's make sure our voices are heard, guys. God bless the United States of Russia. Let's do this. You good? It's working? It's all good. I didn't fall. Thank you again to Samina. Before we get to the last part of the skewer show, the debate, the great debate, what a, what a rhyme. There's a few things I want to call out. Number one, uh, let's give a thank you to Cafe Mustache for being a great venue. They're awesome. 
five drinks from them so they'll keep us here longer. Uh, also, uh, thanks again to every op-ed reader who's been on so far. Come on. They were good. An expert segue. You might have noticed there was a donation bucket on your way into the show. The show is free, but if you have cash on hand and can afford it, uh, donate it, because I'll tell you where the money goes. We pay the people who write and say the things that you like. Yeah. Because there are some shows that don't, and that's bad. So if you want to you know, pay people for giving you art, which you should, and if you don't, what? Uh, please donate. Anyway, the skewer debate. Let's just get right to it. Every month there's a, there's a news story that cannot be summed up by one person's op-ed opinion. We need, to hear, we need to hear both sides of the story. And then you, the audience, needs to vote who is correct in a legally binding decision that is real U.S. law after you decide it. So uh, let's go ahead and get, well, first... Let me explain what the debate's going to be about. So this month, just a whole ton of civilians got murdered in Aleppo by soldiers uh, of, of the President Assad. You might not have heard anything about it because the media didn't care. So what we're going to debate is what can we do as, as a people to make the injustice and tragedy and violence in Aleppo something people actually give a fuck about. So let's, uh, let's get our debaters up on stage. The first is a writer for IO's talk and sketch show POV, and also a uh, writer for the monthly talk show Good Evening with Pat Whalen. She is, according to her, hands down the best Turkish female comic at the skewer tonight. Yeah. Uh, Oz Elgin, please come on stage. And Oz, what will you be uh, debating for today? Uh, I will be arguing that um, I think if we could trick people to believe that people in Syria and Aleppo who are being killed were dogs, puppies, instead of people, Americans would care more. A, a devastating, a devastating topic. <laughs> Our next debater. He's been published by the Chicago, by the Chicago Drama Works. Uh, he is the Storytellers Initiative semifinalist at Series Fest and is the co-founder of Coffee and Whiskey Productions, which is right now raising money on Indiegogo for their triannual reading series, The Script Pub. Please welcome Nick Werewine. <laughs> Nick, what, what will you be debating for? My stance is that we, uh, in order to get people to care about Aleppo, we rename it White People Town. <laughs> I like it. I like it. Both great topics. It's almost like I picked them out because they were funny. <laughs> so the way the debate works, both of you are going to get a couple of minutes to read prepared opening arguments. You will then have to field questions that I ask you that you have not been provided with. Am I correct? Correct. Correct. And then afterwards, you're going to give your closing statements, and then you, the audience, are going to decide who has made a better case. So, uh, Oz, why don't, you, why don't you start off with your opening statements? Uh, I just want to say that um, a couple means five in Turkish, so 
<laughs> I folded my uh, bits into a minimalist origami. It's a cat walk or a ruler or someone's narrow backyard. <laughs> I would like to open the debate with an observation. It appears to me that no matter what, or actually, no matter how funny my debate performance, how acute my satire, how slaying my hilarity <laughs> might be, I just know that you will elect him as your coitus. Before you are outraged by my sexual innuendo, <laughs> Coitus stands for Comedian of Improvisation of the United States. <laughs> As you might know, but might not care, Assad regime, in an attempt to take Aleppo, has killed many civilians there, right around Christmas time. Um, there was not much media coverage, because George Michael had died. And then Carrie Fisher, what the fuck? Oh my god, 2016 was the worst year ever. <laughs> David Bowie, the Prince. Um, anyways, thinking about people dying in Aleppo and also Carrie Fisher, and wondering what will happen to her beloved service dog, Gary, I had an epiphany about how we can get American media and the American people um, to care about the suffering of Syrians. And my epiphany is, all we need to do is to trick people into thinking that Assad was killing puppies, not humans, in Aleppo. Um, I will quickly tell you why this is a most excellent idea and why I am doggedly behind it. <laughs> First, I thought of other animals. I thought of gorillas, majestic, amazing animals. But let's be honest. Like Syrians, we don't give a damn about gorillas. Like, remember Harambe? Yeah. You don't. I also thought about cats. But cats, you know, they don't really need us. They're kind of like our overlords. And that's not Syria, that's China. So, um, so I thought dogs. Dogs are great. We'll go with dogs. Second, Syrians, in their efforts to flee violence and seek asylum, they have been treated like dogs already. <laughs> You've seen them on sinking boats, on running across Europe being kicked by journalists, or being shipped back and forth between Europe and Turkey like a kind of incorrect Amazon order. <laughs> now close your eyes, close your eyes, and think of them as puppies. Immediate outrage. <laughs> I mean, we would share it like a million times on Facebook. We would have a change.org petition and a GoFundMe page, which would raise a million dollars overnight. I mean, the possibilities. I mean, am I barking up the wrong tree here? <laughs> Third, in the US, we love dogs. Americans have spent $60 billion on their pets this year, this past year alone, and most of them are dogs. I mean, I have a standard poodle, and in my house, he does not have to live like a refugee. 
He's royalty. So before you dismiss my idea, throw me a freaking bone here. If you want you if what you want is someone to jump up and down, wiggle their butts, and uh, lick you in the face when you come home, I will personally do it for you. All you have to do is, uh, in return, is to believe that Assad has killed puppies. And as all Americans would agree, dogs are people too. See what I did there? I think I'm uh, hot on the scent of something big. <laughs> My fourth and final point. Once we trick our minds that Assad is killing puppies, not only we will care, but we will finally do something about it. Because we love those stories on BuzzFeed, how an American soldier brings home a puppy from Iraq. It feels, it's like a feel-good story. Um, no one ever challenges the feel-good international dog adoption story. You will never hear questions such as, has anyone done a background check on this dog? Can you really guarantee that it will not terrorize people when it arrives? What are the chances that it will bite an American? Is this dog a Muslim? Nope, dogs get a free pass. So not only we would care, but we would also do something about it by opening our doors to Syrians fleeing a war zone. And there are political groups that can give a major support to this idea. For instance, Blue Dog Democrats. I think I made my point. Dogs, dog on it, people. Uh, let's do, let's do this. Uh, let's stop chasing our tails and uh, let's trick America into thinking that Syrians are puppies. When this country was founded, so was the idea of American exceptionalism. For those unfamiliar with the concept, American exceptionalism centers on the idea that the United States is different than all of the other countries in the world, the exception to the rule. There is some merit to this. America was the first country in the world to be structured around egalitarianism, liberty, individualism, and a laissez-faire economy. There was the rest of the world, and then there was this, the city on the hill, the beacon of light, the United States of America. As time marches forward, American exceptionalism seems to have taken on an unfortunate new meaning for many people. Americans care for everyone except those people. Them. The ones in the weird clothes and the weird food and the weird manners and the weird traditions. The ones who are easily exploited, the ones who are not easily exploited, but are totally worth the effort to exploit. <laughs> Americans care for everyone except for people of color. This was the new, this is the new American exceptionalism, and this brings me to Aleppo, Syria. 
Now, before I move on, I would like to point out that I know the United States has a long, tragic, and storied history of ignoring the suffering and subjugation of all sorts of people, but this show has a time limit. <laughs> so, Aleppo. With thousands of civilians already dead and several reports indicating that there are as many as 50,000 civilians still trapped in Aleppo, Syria, the world needs to pay attention. America needs to pay attention. As my counterpart argued, dogs are certainly one way to garner attention. Second only to perhaps kittens, but this is not my argument to make. <laughs> Pooches are one way to garner attention, but I am not comfortable with lying to the American people. What happens when the truth comes out? What happens when they find out that there are people of color dying and not dogs? What about the dogs, they will cry. What about those poor, dying, beautiful, cute, and cuddly puppers? Yeah. Our response? They were people, but they were brown people. That sentiment will fall eventually on deaf, angry, puppy-loving ears. If we ever take back American exceptionalism and reclaim the position as the beacon of light, the city on the hill, the champion of the free world, even though we totally still marginalize blacks, Latinos, Latinas, Muslims, Jews, the mentally ill, sex workers, legal and legal immigrants, lesbians, gays, bisexuals, transsexuals, intersexuals, asexuals, addicts, the homeless, prisoners, victims of human trafficking, victims of domestic violence, victims of rape, molestation, sexual, emotional, and physical abuse, the developmentally delayed, physically impaired, the crippled, hopeless, helpless, the poor, the unemployed, welfare users, the elderly people in debt, fucking women. <laughs> Not fucking women, but women, fucking women. But this, there is a time limit. If we, the United States of fucking America, want to be want to be better than every other country, if we want to be the country everyone else aspires to, then we must step up and give the deserved attention to atrocities that take place around the world. Because of this, I suggest that from this day forward, on this, the fourth day of January, in the year of our Lord, 2017, that Aleppo, Syria be renamed White People Town. Okay, okay. Y'all can use that one, I'll use this one. So now is the time for the question and answer part of the show. You, you made your great opening statements, you made your arguments in advance, the time to prepare. Now you have to defend them in real time. Oz, I'm going to ask you the first question. How do you explain why there were so many dogs in Aleppo to be murdered to begin with? There were dogs, there were cats, pigeons, one or two gorilla, <laughs> a lot of people uh, who lost their humanity ended up thinking that they're dogs, hence added to the dog population. Um, yeah, um, see stray dogs is a big thing in the Middle East. Um, uh, I grew up in Turkey. Um, and we have a lot of stray dogs on the street. 
and they're like kind of part of your life. Like, it's interesting. Here, people really own their dogs. In like in Turkey, like the neighborhood owns the dogs. You know, like they're kind of part of your life. They say hello. They're cooler. Like here, dogs are too like too excited. Like, there, they're like cool. They're like more like what's up. And they're like, yeah, don't bite me. And so, um, but you know, they're free. And uh, probably once the war started, the whole um, sniffing didn't happen. So they grew in larger populations. And then they died. And from despair, they had more sex. They grew in population. So it's just a cycle. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So uh, I think that's what happened. I think that's why there were so many stray dogs and stray people who I'm trying to pitch as dogs so we can get them over here. It's happening. You know what I mean? Yeah. Nick, we're, we're on the north side. This is Logan Square. You see the people here. I do. When, how, how are you going to keep the misconception when you say white people town the first time how are you going to stop us all from immediately thinking you're talking about right here? <laughs> uh, I, I believe that Chicagoans would know, uh, well, one, if there was a creation of a new neighborhood. Uh, I mean, this whole city, well, the north side of the city, threw a fit when Wrigleyville wasn't actually a neighborhood. Um, and I, I, I also believe that they would uh, feel a sense of uh, a duty to, to know what's going on with the um, the white population because we're really good at ignoring everyone else. Mm -hmm. So we would we would just feel that this is right. It would feel normal. We would normalize it and make it part of our everyday life. Okay. Nice. Oz, next question for you. So. I, I, I'm with your argument. People, Americans, find out, oh, they've been killing a bunch of little puppies. They're going to freak out. They're going to want to undo that injustice or, or make some sort of change immediately. But eventually someone's going to put it together that those dogs in Aleppo are probably Arabic dogs, and then they'll stop caring again. What is your proposal for when that happens? I just want to point out that Nick just said duty. <laughs> I'm gonna win this. A woman should win something. Um, so um, I just want to point out that you know, forget about Arabic or muzzle or Muslim or whatever. They're white dogs. <laughs> sell this white people town ruse, we're going to need to doctor some of the footage of Aleppo. What sort of audio-visual tricks do you think will most sell white people town as a real thing? Uh, before I answer that, Tom, I would like to say, win or lose, I am going to start the hashtag all dogs matter um, after this, uh, after tonight. But not all winners, folks. Uh, but to answer your question, I mean, basically, there's a lot, a lot of footage out there that we can use um, from old black and white movies. 
I don't see why we can't reuse uh, old Charlie Chaplin, Buster Keaton. There, there are literally thousands of hours of public domain black and white footage up there. We throw it on uh, on the TV. Uh, we we just we just put on the bottom Aleppo. Uh, I mean, we just got like a strike through. It says white people. people like, Look at all the white people. This is terrifying. But we got to save them. Yeah. Yo, good, good point. Straight up. Uh. Oh lord, what what an, a what a one that this one is. So I'm going to end the question, question and answer debate with a question that I want both of you to give me your answer to. Whoever wants to go first can approach the mic. The question is that both, both of these ideas, they could work. They could make people care. They could make the injustice in Aleppo be something that people actually care about. But we couldn't do them twice. People aren't going to be fooled two times. So the next time a Middle Eastern city is ravaged by injustice and no one gives a fuck, what do we do then? We merely put on blinders or put our heads in the sand and pretend that it's not happening. We tell them it's the Kardashians. <laughs> wow! time for the closing statements after which you will have all that you need to decide who is the winner of the debate. Ah, why don't you start off the closing. Let me unfold my lap pool. <laughs> <laughs> I love that bit. <laughs> I just want to say that probably the best jokes about my bit is going to come to me right after the show, so if you want to meet me up in the corner. <laughs> Fellow canine lovers. I use lovers again. <laughs> Fellow tender canine lovers. Since in my opening statement I talked about why tricking people into thinking Assad is killing puppies is the best way to get Americans to care about Syria. In my closing statement, I will address how we can achieve this effectively. I have one word for you, Snapchat filters. It's two words. Uh, but you know, uh, you kind of get the point. Um, we could use those Snapchat filters that turn people into dogs. Just you know. All the images and videos of Aleppo. Done. I mean, easy. Or we could put Google to use. We just have to convince Google to work with us. Bear with me. Especially after the presidential debates, Americans have been Googling what is Aleppo. <laughs> Imagine if the first Google answer that comes up is Aleppo is a rare and endangered dog breed that is being killed and masked by Assad forces. <laughs> and then we could have Google ads on the side that say, Adopt Aleppo today.
of this works, we could be nationally hypnotized by a magician, a second-rate second magician, a third-rate magician, I think that's the right, yeah. A third-rate magician, like David Blaine or Donald Trump, and be tricked into thinking that Assad is killing puppies. Then we would also have PETA's backing, and then we would really have a militia force behind us. <laughs> Jane Fonda, Caesar Milan, and Snoop Dogg <laughs> would be like the spokespeople for our cause, and Disney would make a new animated movie right away. 101 Syrians. <laughs> In the beginning, I struggled with this idea myself, but I came around. And you might think I'm a bitch, but I consider that a compliment. <laughs> so dog got it, people. It's about time we pay back and become a dog's best friend. I understand that for many people, white people town is a name, not a concept, because it is clearly brilliant. A white people town may be a bit hard to swallow. It is a tad on the nose and could be considered offensive to those with more liberal sensibilities. There's a certain amount of understandable trepidation that comes with standing up and supporting a place called white people town. I mean, I have a Middle Eastern friend and how do you think he'd feel in a place called white people town? Where is he from? Neighborville, but that's not the point. <laughs> For those folks who question my plan, I ask that you consider the greater good. Imagine the possibilities for Aleppo. Imagine the possibilities of half, the, half, half as many liberal Americans called out Syria the way they care about boycotting Chick-fil-A or burning New Balance shoes. Every little bit of light we can shine on the horrors that take place in Aleppo, the horrors that take place daily all across Syria, help to strengthen the notion that real people, real men, women, and children are being murdered at the hands of government-funded, holy book-wielding assholes. It has to stop, and if renaming Aleppo White People Town convinces people that Aleppo might actually matter, then it's worth it. Now, some of you may be thinking, Nick, how, how can you condemn your counterpart for lying, lying, to the American public. How can you be upset about the little fib that Aleppo was filled with ever-rising piles of dead doggies when you're willing to let those same people think that it's filled with white people when it is definitely not filled with white people? The answer is pretty simple. I'm not lying. That's it. I can't help it if people are stupid. In a time of massively successful clickbait headlines and the incessant propagation of fake news, I trust that the American people simply will not do their research. But that does not mean they won't care-ish. <laughs> it's more than they're doing now, anyway. At best, the name would be taken as ironic. Or at worst, it will just be something they roll with. It may be a thin line, but it's an important one. One last thing. It's probably pretty clear that I, I've put more thought into convincing my liberal-minded brethren, uh, asking them uh, to help justify naming uh, a, a town white people town. And while the liberal vote is important, 
I would, I would be remiss if I excluded the conservatives. They are the group whose support I need the most in this moment. We all know that Trump supporters are a clever, quick-witted bunch. <laughs> and because of this, I fear they will see through my plan. I believe in this cause, so I've come up with a handful of alternatives to white people town that may help win over the conservatives whose support I so badly need. <clears throat> Paris. <laughs> London. Tokyo. Boston. Oslo, Orlando, Columbine, Sandy Hook, New York, Chicago, <laughs> uh, not Chicago, <laughs> Moscow, Munich, Prague, Vienna, Amsterdam, Rome, Barcelona, Dublin, Milan, Venice, ah, Venice, <laughs> Stockholm, Racistford, <laughs> Honkyville, Redneckham, Homophobefurt, Geo Petersburg, Alt-Righton, Anti-Womanshire, Cracker Barrel, not to be confused with Cracker Barrel, Climate Change Deniersville, Neo-Naziopolis, Bible Thumperton, Right to Bear Armsboro, and finally, Republicanistan. Vote Aleppo, vote white people town. Thank you. No, that was a debate. Wow. <laughs> so now is the time where we decide who wins the least coveted, most dangerous live comedy award in Chicago, The Skewer. It's a piece of garbage and very sharp. Don't run with it. So the way this works is I'm going to ask you, the audience, one by one, who you think won this debate. You might be thinking, Tom, are we judging by how funny they were or how good their arguments were? That's on you. You know, you make your own decision on, on, what, on what you hold dear. Uh, but important, you got, you got to clap for both people. If you clap for one person, then just like, for the other, it's terrible. It makes everyone feel uncomfortable. <laughs> So we're going to need a, uh, an impartial judge to judge who gets the loudest applause uh, because I uh, will always pick Oz to, to smash the patriarchy. Uh, so, <laughs> sir, you there, will you, do you wish to be our impartial judge? I wish to be the impartial judge. Delightful. <laughs> so, uh, audience, if you believe that Oz Elgin was the winner of this debate, please applaud now. If you believe that Nick Wehrlein was the winner in this debate, please applaud now. <laughs> Impartial judge, who gets who gets to throw this away later? Oz, <laughs> <laughs> congratulations.
Thank you to both Greg and Oz. That was fantastic. And that has been our show this evening. Thank you. I've been Tom Harrison. Co-producer Erica drives by. Come, come, come on up here. Yeah. Come on up here. Thank you for the voice Fantastic. Yeah, take a little piece of paper and get a call or figure out someone else to call. And take one of these cool flyers and give them to your cool friend and be like, hey, cool friend. Yeah. Here's something you should come to February 1st. Yeah. Right back here. Every at, first Wednesday. That's right. Just be like, check out this cool picture. And be like, whoa. And be like, I know. Erica, what if someone here wants to be on a future Skira show? What should they do? They should get in touch with me or Tom ASAP. Yeah, just come up and like walk up to our physical bodies now and tell us with your mouth. We're super friendly. Yeah. <laughs> I'm super friendly. I'm very scared of people. <laughs> Thank you, everyone. Yes. Hey, thank you so much for listening to the Skewer podcast this month. If you liked what you heard, you can come to one of our live shows. We are at Cafe Mustache in Chicago the first Wednesday of every month. Uh, we would love to see you there. If you can't be there in person, uh, you can subscribe to this podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, anywhere you can find a podcast. And if you're interested in getting more information, uh, being on the show, feel free to email us at skewerchicago at gmail.com. Uh, and, you know, we're, we're just waiting to hear. We love you people. That's what we do it for, to make you happy. Anyway, I'm rambling. Uh, thank you for listening. See you next month, and goodbye.